The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. That's what the subpoena called for, documents labeled classified, and if they help Trump conceal them and not turn them over in response to a subpoena, that's obstruction. So there doesn't seem to be, it doesn't seem like a very difficult question, but she's insisted that she must okay this through the Section 4 process instead of just through the Section 3 process. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 18th, 2023. Yes, folks, it's another episode of Trump Trials and Tribulations, the last one before Thanksgiving when we will take a week off. Joining me in the virtual jungle studio were Lawfare Senior Editor Roger Parloff and Lawfare Legal Fellow Anna Bauer, our Fulton County correspondent, We talked about the latest developments in Mar-a-Lago, where Judge Cannon has issued a cryptic order that requires examination like tarot cards, chicken entrails, and tea leaves. We talked about the latest in the Section 3 litigation in three states, Minnesota, Colorado, and Michigan. We talked about the latest weirdness in Fulton County, where we had a confession on the stand of who released some proffer videos to the public. It was awesome. And we took audience questions. And you can be part of that audience in the future by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 18th. Trump trials and tribulations. What is Judge Cannon up to now? Things are quieting down I think it is fair to say in the run-up to the holidays, a bit less action across the sphere of combat than we we have been used to. Roger, let's start with, uh, we haven't started down in South Florida in a while, but uh, Judge Eileen Cannon, the other day while we were, just after we recorded, issued another one of her super cryptic, what on earth did she say? And what on some other planet did she mean by it orders before we get into trying to decipher like the oracle of delphi uh what what she has done here tell us about just what the order is it appeared to be just a scheduling order but it's not yeah it's a scheduling order she's been you know uh foreshadowing this for some time that well she had started canceling various deadlines and saying she's working on something. It sort of began when she was 
you know, she took forever on the protective order. The protective order is usually something that comes down very early and takes about, you know, five days to issue. And the government hoped it would come out in July. That's the predecessor to beginning. You don't want to turn over classified discovery without a protective order in place because you need to make sure people don't misuse uh, the documents or don't disseminate them. Don't so. Uh, but instead of coming out in July, it didn't come out until um, mid-September, and then she still had issues. And anyway, meanwhile, she's pushing off other things. And so finally, uh, and at some point, uh, Trump uh, was not only asking for delays in all the other uh, uh, deadlines, he, he openly asked for putting off the trial date from May 20th till mid-November after the election. And so she finally ruled on all of his motions for various delays. And basically, she granted all the delays and but said it was premature to ask for the formal putting off of the trial date. And so she denied that without prejudice, but she will reconsider that on March uh, first, which is only which is less than two months before uh, the May 20th trial date. But when you look at, you know, all the things that were put off and all the things that remain to be done after uh, March 1st and aren't even scheduled, it begins to look impossible to keep that trial date. Yeah. So I have seen two distinct reads of this. One uh, by Andrew Weissman on the uh, Prosecuting Donald Trump podcast. Weissman is a, you know, he was one of Mueller's top prosecutors, serious guy, reads this in a very conspiratorial fashion. He sees it as she is uh, making the maid deadline impossible, but also not freeing up the May time slot. So which, you know, if she were to cancel it now or postpone it now, then maybe Fulton County could schedule in May. But by holding on to it, she uh, makes it basically impossible for anybody else to schedule in that time. And then she'll push it off later. And so it's a real windfall for Trump. The other, the more generous way to read it, I suppose, is, hey, realistically, if the case in Washington is going to trial on March 5th, which Judge Chutkin purports that it is, uh, the May trial deadline is, deadline is totally unrealistic anyway, um, because you're not going to go you know, it's a it's minimum of a six week trial in Washington. And, you know, you're not going to go directly in from one trial to another. And what if it runs a little longer, which they always do, by the way. And so this way, she's holding on to it. You get all your pretrial litigation done. You wait and see whether Judge Chutkin gets a slay stat a stay slapped on her, not a slay stapped onto her. And if not, uh, you, if if she does, then maybe you go forward with May or maybe in June or something. And if she doesn't and she's going forward, and you're going to push it off anyway. So I, I guess my question is, 
do you see this in as conspiratorial a fashion as Andrew does or in as gentle a fashion as I just described or somewhere in between? Well, I, I don't know about the three-dimensional chess for her. I don't, I don't know if she's thinking, you know, if she cares what happens with Fulton County or if she's even factored that in. But uh, I do think she's got the 11th circuit breathing down her neck. She's aware of that first catastrophic ruling. And uh, the next move that will get the most criticism is this one about putting off the trial date. And she's she's putting it off. But this was a very hard, this was an impossible order to appeal. It's, it's a lot of judgment things about about scheduling and uh she makes almost every decision buying the government buying trump's perspective on on things uh but still uh you know it's colorable and uh, uh i think by not putting off the trial immediately uh she she doesn't look as bad or biased or 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 it's not as controversial and she actually got some initial coverage saying oh she she did she denied the the motion to, to put off the trial so yeah so i guess the other thing that she did in this ruling is she sets up a much more adversarial understanding of sepa than other judges have done um, or than than essentially all of the case law um, that has also attracted a fair bit of criticism. Walk us through what she did here and how it differs from the way other judges have handled it. Well, and and she hasn't yet ruled on this, but it's it's hard to understand her schedule without anticipating that she's going to rule this way. And one easy way to look at it is to look at what the original schedule was and what it is now. Section four, the way it works is uh, the government at this stage has turned over or has made available, I should say, they don't turn over classified evidence, they make it available in a skiff, but uh, a lot of information, 5,500 pages. But there's going to be some additional stuff. And with that, um, they are going to use a procedure or try to use a procedure where they say, you know, portions of this, uh, the defendants are entitled to, or at least Trump, but portions of these documents are just too sensitive and there's, and they're irrelevant. So you go to the judge and you say, and, and this is ex party, the government in a sealed proceeding with just the judge, not even no Trump lawyers says, look, here are these ultra sensitive documents. Uh, we want to either summarize this or redact such and such, or simply we'll say we'll admit to something, but rather than give them the whole document, this is what we plan to do. And simultaneously or the same day, the, uh, defense meets also ex parte with the judge and says, here are the basics of our defense as we see it. And, and the judge uses her, is supposed to say, okay, based on what the defense is, she can judge whether the redactions are going to be fair. And that's how it usually works. 
in 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 the D.C. case, we already know what Trump is going to do because he tried to do it in the D.C. case. And he said, no, even though this is the procedure that SEPA calls for, I want an adversarial uh, proceeding. I want my lawyers to hear all of the ultra sensitive classified information and to and to be able to argue whether you can redact any of it. And to be fair to Trump, that is what basically every defendant in a case with classified information tries to do, because by trying to get the government to have to disclose more classified material, you raise the cost to the government of litigating the case. Yeah, this is called gray mail. And this is the whole reason the Classified Information Procedures Act exists is to try to because otherwise the defense lawyers are always demanding more and more classified information, saying I can't it, it won't be a fair trial unless I have it. And 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 at or some threatening point, to use classified information in their defense. Yeah. And uh, if if the judge rules in the defendant's favor, the government may have to drop the entire case rather than expose all of these ultra sensitive documents to the defense and to the jury and, and to everybody. So this is what Section four is about. And and. But SEPA is very clear that this should be ex parte and not an adversarial proceeding. And uh, and there's rulings, at least in D.C., that are binding the D.C. Circuit uh, saying, you know, this would defeat the whole purpose of the statute. And so Judge Shutt can already rule and said, no, you can't do that. We're going to follow the rules. But here, you know, there's a different sheriff in town. And um, so originally uh, the plan was to do it, uh, you know, uh, October, I think October 10th would be the uh, the, the two ex parte proceedings uh, and October 17th would be a little hearing to resolve any issues. Now, nothing gets started. It's set off until December 4th is when it starts when when the government makes its motion and at that point trump is supposed to move for you know make his motion uh to have this be an adversarial proceeding and then uh then she calls for sometime in uh, sometime in january it it calls for trump to make a motion challenging the uh the government's uh sepa section 4 uh, proposal and of course, he wouldn't. There would be no basis for challenging it unless he has seen it. So that motion, a ways off, says she must be considering this seriously. And then later, February twelfth and thirteenth is a two-day hearing on these SEPA Section Four things, um, where she'll decide. Um, so, in other words, the scheduling order itself presupposes a degree of adversariality that that is exactly the sort of thing that the statute seems to prohibit and that Judge Chutkin forbade, right? Yes. And and to to make it clearer for you that I've just described a four month process that in the original schedule took one week. It was October 10th to October 17th. So 
Um, it, it looks like she's anticipating. And, and the other odd thing about this schedule is that although she puts in, the, you know, the dates for the defense motions, uh, the one about that this should be ex parte and the one challenging the government's Section 4 proposals, um, she doesn't put in any schedule for the government to respond to those motions. So uh, it, it Freudian slip. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. So stupid question. But my impression is that a general as a general matter, SEPA pretrial rulings are appealable on an interlocutory basis. That is Right. You can the government can if he it doesn't like her rulings on SEPA matters can take her to the 11th Circuit. Right. Right away. The question, uh, the scheduling order is presumably not subject to interlocutory appeal. But what is the first ruling that she is likely to make that is sufficiently within the SEPA? Is, Is it the adversariality? ruling that she'll have to make in October? Is it the, like, what's the point at which the government can say, okay, this is going up to uh, the appeals court? That's a good question. Um, I assume that because uh, you would be showing the defense lawyers information that uh, if she accepts the ex parte ruling that would mean showing the government's uh section four motion to the at least the lawyers and 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 since the government's position was they have no need to know uh and that's i i think you would take it up then so we should expect that motion is due well, she doesn't say when she's going to rule on it, right? No, no. But but presumably sometime before January, because right. in January is when she's scheduled the hearings under the ruling that she has not yet issued yet. Yeah. Now, there is one line in her ruling, to be fair, that does indicate she understands that it would be an extraordinary situation for it not to be ex parte. So maybe she'll just take it up like Chutkin did and said uh, no. And then, of course, she could move up the other deadlines after that. We'll, we'll have to see. But it doesn't seem to contemplate that that schedule. One other thing that's slowing this down is that her earlier move ruling, which was also strange on the uh, protective order, she made a ruling that no said so far as the government knows no other court has made and this was remember this was the protective order said okay trump gets all 32 documents that he allegedly withheld he's seen them already he gave the others the other guys access to them as well well uh we only know that Nauta saw one of them, and that's the one that fell out of the box that you used to have pictured behind you. I, I wish you still uh, had, had that scene from Mar-a-Lago. Where oh, the I, I can do the hang on. Oh, I can, okay. I'll, I'll bring that on while you're talking. Uh, so that document is uh, uh, the Count 8 document. So he gets to see that document, Nauta does, but no other document. And then D'Olivera gets to see no documents. De Oliveira has 
they're all irrelevant. Well, she said, well, you can't do that in Section 3, and I won't go into why it's very odd. You have to use Section 4. And what that means is that even though the government has already made 5,500 pages of documents available to uh, the defense lawyers, the government is going to have to apparently give those to the judge to sift through herself uh, again. Well, she hasn't gone through it before and decide whether it's appropriate to not give them to Nauta and uh, de Oliveira. And uh, that's a very time consuming process that she's brought upon herself. And it's very puzzling because it's pretty obvious. It seems pretty obvious to many that they don't have a right to it. You know, it's they aren't charged with withholding national defense information. They're charged with obstruction of justice. And as long as they know that the document was labeled classified and and they helped Trump that that's what the subpoena called for documents labeled classified. And if they help Trump conceal them and not turn them over in response to a subpoena, that's obstruction. So there doesn't seem to be it doesn't seem like a very difficult question. But she's insisted that she must okay this through the Section 4 process instead of just through the Section 3 process. All right. So, Anna, Roger has demurred on the question of uh, whether Judge Cannon is playing four-dimensional chess with respect to Fulton County. But uh, we can still talk about the effects of what she's doing on the Fulton County case, where we still don't have a trial date. Uh, first of all, Fonnie Willis made some interesting remarks this week about how long this proceeding was likely to go on. And secondly, do we have any reason to believe that the absence of a trial date in Fulton County is related to the uh, machinations in uh, South Florida. It could, but I, I mean, I, I believe that there, it's also might have something to do with uh, the pending removal issues and the fact that all these defendants are still, you know, joined together who have removal uh, appeals going on with Mark Meadows, with Jeff Clark, with the the fake electors. Uh, and then I think it also has something to do with McAfee maybe waiting to see if there's going to be any more pleas uh, and try to kind of uh, see exactly how big this pool of defendants uh, will kind of end up being by the time we get to a later point in time. And, and maybe by that point, there's a little bit more clarity with what Trump's other trial schedules will, will look like. So, I, I mean, I, I do not envy Judge McAfee. You know, he's I we've made very clear that we all think he's he's done an impressive job so far, but um, he's got a tough uh, job in terms of looking at all these other moving parts with these trial dates and and with uh all these defendants i mean because it's not just trump right it's like 
I mean, Jeff Clark has asked to delay, you know, three months because he's got a, a um, bar discipline um, trial that's coming up. Like Rudy Giuliani is going to trial in December, I believe it is, for, you know, his defamation case. Um, all of these people have legal or not all of them, but many of them have legal problems and legal issues that are going on outside of the jurisdiction of Fulton County. And they, you know, have a reason to raise those scheduling issues, whether it's in good faith or as a way to delay or not, you know, it's certainly something that McAfee has to consider. So I, I really just don't envy him in terms of the Fonnie Willis comments about the trial going into early 2025, I've seen some people who have reacted that to that by saying, you know, oh, so she's, you know, moved the goalposts in terms of when she wants the trial to start. But I mean, she originally said March, she wanted a March trial date. That's obviously not going to happen now because uh, Chutkin is seems at, who knows what could happen, you know, of course, with some of the interlocutory appeals. But uh, as of right now, it seems like Judge Chutkin's very set on March. And even if it did, even if the Fulton County case did start in March, I think early 2025 is maybe as of right now, the earliest that case could get done because of the way that, you know, jury selection could go McAfee potentially could allow some interlocutory appeals that he didn't with the speedy trial defendants. There's just so many defendants in that in that pool of of people that it's it's really, you know, something that I think it's going to be a very long jury selection process. And then we've got at least a four month trial. So I, I think that she's she's right to say that, you know, it's probably not going it. It's even, you know, pretty optimistic to think that it'll be over by early 2025. Is McAfee currently working on setting a trial date or is that just in the future because he's got a whole bunch of other pending motions to resolve before you even try to set a trial date? What's the like, what do we know about his workflow at this point? I mean, we don't really know much. I, I do not know, you know, when he's going to set one or, you know, if he just wants to. It, we've got this big motions date that's coming up on December 1st. And I think maybe there is something to this idea that he's going to resolve some of those motions and then consider whether to allow them to go up on interlocutory appeal. Uh, he did not allow interlocutory. He, he made a you know blanket statement when we had the speedy trial defendants that he wasn't going to allow uh, interlocutory appeals because, of course, in Georgia, it's discretionary. So it's all up to him whether or not to, you know, just let it go up or or if people have to wait for direct appeals. These are many of the same issues we've discussed before. Some of these motions are just pure questions of law. And McAfee already denied them for people like Ken Chesbrough and Sidney Powell. But the difference here might be that he denies. And then if they uh, request an appeal, he might allow those issues to go up on appeal. And so then, you know, it's kind of a question of maybe he just waits to see what happens with the appeals process. So there's just so many moving parts that I really don't know what to tell you. I think that if the Fulton County, like if Fulton County prosecutors 
you know, I, I, what I wonder is what they, what their strategy here is because they could kind of nudge him to try to set a trial date. Um, they haven't done that. I was kind of expecting them to do that when the, as soon as they cleared the decks of the case that was supposed to go of, of the Chesboro Sidney Powell uh, case that was supposed to go to trial, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I sort of expected them to come in and say, okay, can you, can you now set a trial date? And I'm not really sure why they haven't done that. I don't know. I, and I, you know, I, I don't know. And that's something that I would, you know, like to figure out. Uh, so when I go to the hearing on Tuesday, maybe I'll try to uh, ask around, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that. It's, it's, it's interesting. Meanwhile, in Fulton County, we had a fun hearing this week. Uh, we had the disclosure of a whole bunch of proffer videos, which we discussed uh, last week. We had allegations that these were sort of an improper leak by the uh, uh, the defendant named uh, Harrison Floyd, who said, no, it wasn't me. I'm going to present the witness who's going to confess all. <laughs> and then he did. Um, which, you know, had a little touch of awesome in it. So walk us through what happened uh, this week in the, the, the case of the mysterious uh, proffer videos. Right. So, they, of course, these proffer videos are uh, videos that were made uh, when we've had four defendants who have pleaded out, uh, Scott Hall, Jenna Ellis, Ken Chesbro, and Sidney Powell, so a few media outlets, I believe right now it's the Washington Post, uh, ABC and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution received uh, those those videos. I'm not sure if there are other outlets who got it or not. I just want to say that, you know, Lawfare normally first in line. We did not get the videos. Um, and I suggest that everybody watching this send an email of protest to the relevant uh we call them perpetrators because they're other people's sources, not ours. Anyway, you were saying. Right. And if you have the proper videos and you want to send them our way, we will take them. Yes. Uh, and 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 we would probably publish more of the videos than the other outlets did that just gave us like a little two minute segment. Yeah, we um, don't do snippets at Lawfare. <laughs> we would make the whole thing available mm -hmm. And so, you know, we're not saying uh, engage in any inappropriate activity, but Anna, is it illegal for uh, these defense lawyers to be uh, uh, dishing this stuff? No. And that's I mean, look, I think there's probably going to be a lot of people who disagree with me on this just as a as, as a measure of propriety. But as a matter of, of law, like. Jonathan Miller did nothing wrong. Uh, <laughs> um, there, there was no protective order. Well, that he was did ever... do something wrong. He gave it to the Atlanta Journal Constitution and the Washington Post and the and the ABC and didn't give it to Lawfare. Very, exactly. very bad. 
And that should be unlawful. That's what is wrong here. Um, no, but uh, so Jonathan Miller, you know, he he did not do anything that uh, w- was, you know, something that uh, there were there was a lot of talk about, you know, will he get sanctioned and the judge will investigate and all this stuff. But I mean, there was no protective order that had been that had been entered in the case. Uh, the prosecution knew that there was no protective order. There have been motions uh, on the docket that are like standalone items of protective kind of back and forth, you know, where like the GBI wanted to turn something over to a defendant. And so they requested a very, uh, you know, narrow protective order just over those materials. Uh, And so the prosecution, when they handed over these proffer videos, you know, they could have at least motioned or moved for a protective order just over the proffers, even though there was disagreement between folks uh, about between the defense and the prosecution about whether or not there should be a broader protective order. They could have at least tried to just, you know, limit the proffers uh, and then say, and we'll work out the rest of it later. Um, They didn't do that. So there was nothing that, you know, was was uh, prohibiting any of these defense attorneys from turning anything over. So, uh, you know, it's it's just not again. I I know there I've I've talked to some of the defense attorneys who um, are surprised by it just because as a matter of propriety, like a proffer is something that you kind of understand is is something that's more uh, confidential uh, in nature and or more sensitive in nature. But, you know, he he did what he did. He said it was because his client believes in transparency and he didn't think that those videos, uh, you know, were something that would hurt her case. And then also noteworthy as well, he said in the hearing that he only turned over the videos to one outlet and he specifically mentioned that he believed it was Powell and Hall's videos that did not hurt his client because they're, of course, the people who are also charged with uh, crimes related to Coffee County. So if you look at who got what videos, I believe only the Washington Post got both Scott Hall and Sidney Powell's videos. So I think there might be someone else out there who didn't fess up, who who also disclosed the videos. Um, but as a result, we now have a protective order that was entered today by Judge McAfee. It is a limited protective order that still allows people to hand over information. So defense attorneys, if you are listening, you can still give people things as long as it's not designated sensitive. And and there's a mechanism by which the prosecution does that. And then, you know, defense can contest that uh, designation. Uh, and, and there are some pretty broad exceptions for things, you know, that the uh, attorneys came through by independent means, not through the, the discovery process or things that are already public or have been filed or that kind of thing. So that's where we are. And still no signs of any other pleas. Uh, no, I know. But, you know. it's one of those things where in Fulton County, you always think it's going to be a sleepy week. And then all of a sudden, right. Friday afternoon is plea, Mm -hmm. plea time. Mm -hmm. It's just before happy hour. Right. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend, but what won't change needing health insurance, United healthcare, tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time you actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial it's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule all you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are 
products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. All right. So, uh, Roger, we've had movement in various states on Section 3 litigation for those who are new to lawfare trials and tribulations. Section 3 is, of course, the provision of the 14th Amendment that says you can't be an officer of the United States if you've been one before and been involved in an insurrection. And of course, that raises questions about at least one presidential candidate that uh, seems to be heading toward uh, a nomination by a major party. So bring us up to speed. The last we heard last week, the Minnesota Supreme Court has said this isn't ripe yet because it's just a primary. Um, but now we have action from... Uh, the uh, Michigan courts. And we also have expected action, I think, tomorrow from the Colorado trial court. So bring us up to speed. Yeah. So in Michigan, uh, we had actually a trio of rulings uh, yesterday, but they were all by the same judge and they were almost identical in two suits. And then Trump brought his own suit to squelch those two suits uh, to keep uh, 
they were efforts to keep Trump off the primary, well, to keep him off the ballots in Michigan. And so the first part of his ruling was almost identical to the Minnesota ruling you described and he cited the Minnesota ruling you described. Um, and that was primaries, at least in Michigan, are sort of an internal party affair and uh, for internal party purposes. And if the party wants to give a slot to an ineligible candidate, uh, it can. So that sort of makes it irrelevant for us to get involved to see whether he is ineligible. And then uh, because so they, they dismissed the part of it that had to do with keeping him off the primary ballot. And then uh, as far as the general, since the primary um, doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, you can win the uh, Trump could win the Michigan primary and theoretically not win the the uh, uh, not become the nominee at the convention in July or June or whenever the convention is. So the the general election part of it isn't ripe. So if it had stopped there, it would have been just like Minnesota. Uh, but it didn't. He kept going. And I don't know whether this would I think you can argue over whether the rest is dictum or not. But uh, he rules that uh, this is also the Section three issue is also a non justiciable political question. So that means he he thinks that courts aren't permitted to decide the Section three question. This has to be up to Congress. And um, he cites several provisions of the Constitution, um, Article 2, and uh, but particularly the 20th Amendment and the 25th Amendment. Uh, the 20th Amendment has some language in it about what, uh, co giving Congress the power to decide what happens if the president is unqualified or the, but it doesn't actually give Congress the power to decide if he's unqualified. And then the 25th, of course, is that very impractical provision that, you know, we people briefly looked at after right after January 6th, uh, when the president becomes, I, I forget the key language, he's unfit or unavailable to serve or, or, who can't incapable of serving um, it, again, it doesn't say anything about deciding if he's ineligible, but the reason he, he, he actually cited there was a New Hampshire ruling in one of these cases as well. In one of the Castro cases, there's a guy named Castro, uh, John Castro, who's not a lawyer. He says he went to law school uh, he's not uh, admitted anywhere. And he has brought at least 27 of these cases in different states. But the New Hampshire court, a district judge, threw his case out on basically on a standing issue, but then also intimated that maybe this, uh, maybe it's not, uh, I'm inclined to, to rule it's not a, uh, it's a non-justiciable political question. So, uh, the Michigan case followed the New Hampshire case on that. And there's a number of these rulings out there that sort of come from frivolous suits that were brought to try to kick Barack Obama out of office on the theory that he had been born in Kenya. And, you know, these suits had a lot of problems 
and judges tended to list ways to get rid of them. You know, there's no standing political, uh, non-justiciable political, you know, they weren't that well thought out, but there are a number of these rulings out there. So this is a a, a sort of emerging as as a pretty serious way to get rid of these cases. Now, in Colorado, we had a whole five-day trial, I guess, two weeks ago now. And then yesterday, she heard closing arguments, Judge Sarah Wallace, a state judge in Colorado. And she's going to rule, apparently, tomorrow. She's told the lawyers uh, she would rule within 48 hours. If she rules for the petitioners, um, obviously, uh, striking Trump from the ballot there, obviously it will be it, it can be appealed directly to the Colorado Supreme Court and uh, 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 probably f- further if it, if it needs to be. But even so, if she were to do the you know rule for the petitioners, uh, it, it would be historic in itself. I mean, it, it, obviously. And uh, she has said that she is not likely to revisit her earlier rulings. She is not going to revisit her earlier rulings. Uh, And so she has already rejected a lot of the procedural uh, ways of getting rid of these cases. She has already ruled, for instance, that Section 3 is self-executing. That means, uh, you know, we don't have to wait for Congress to enact a method of of enforcing Section 3. Um, And she has also rejected that argument about non-justiciable political question. In fact, I think it's probably the most lengthy, serious look at that issue out there. She's rejected that. So yesterday, the arguments were largely about sort of uh, the merits uh, believe it or not. And um, uh, so uh, the petitioners hit hard um, the the tweet at 2.24 p.m. on January 6th. You know, that's the one that y- you need to prove engaging in uh, uh, insurrection. And you can sort of beat around the bush about, uh, well, is inciting... Uh, Was it inciting? And even if it was inciting, is inciting engaging? But the 224 tweet is the the riot is underway and he is pouring gasoline on the fire. This is the tweet. I'm sorry. This is the, you know, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what needed to be done. And this is, you know, after people have penetrated the Capitol. and, And this is also... It is possible. There are various different ways to show with police body cam- body worn cameras that it does seem to inflame the crowd. So uh, they they hammered that. Uh, also, the, the petitioners called Gerard Maglioka as their constitutional expert. He's a you know he's a very big figure in this area. He's written a book on the 14th Amendment. He's written two peer-reviewed articles on Section 3, one of which came out, as I've mentioned before, in December 2020, before January 6th. So it's not like he's just an anti-Trump guy. And in contrast, the the Trump people called Robert Delahunty, who is a professor, but he's not a name that anyone has really heard in this context. And, he right, admitted, and he's, he's chiefly known for having written 
heavy duty uh, uh, executive power articles with John Yu. With John Yu, yeah. So, um, and I think he wrote an op-ed on this subject. You know, it's more like that. Um, and and he admitted on the stand that he was not an expert in the history of Section Three. So, uh, Magliocca gave some definitions of insurrection from the relevant period. You know, from Attorney General. Stanwick or uh, uh, whoever was attorney general at at the time they were starting to enforce Section 3, you know, some very concrete uh, definitions, and they all uh, seem to apply. The Trump focus here, and, and again, of course, on appeal, they can raise the issues that the judge has already rejected, whether Section 3 is self-executing, non-justiciable, political question. But here, you know, speaking to her, given what she's already ruled, they they spoke a lot about the January 6th report being, uh, she, she shouldn't be able to rely on that. And that is a crucial evidentiary question. Uh, there are 97 findings uh, from the January 6th report that the plaintiffs are asking her to accept. And uh, now a report is usually hearsay, and there's an exception, 8038, uh, that replies, that applies to certain public reports. And But there has to be, you know, indicia of reliability. And, and, and so uh, Trump, the Trump lawyers were focusing on yeah, it's bipartisan, in, but in the sense that there were two Republicans on it, but they weren't the Republicans that Kevin McCarthy wanted to be on it. And and all of the dispute there, there wasn't a minority report. There weren't minority staff. You know, 46% of the House voted against impeachment of Trump for incitement, and none of those people were on the committee. All of the people on the committee were people who voted to commit to convict of incitement before this thing even began. So the argument is before the commission was created. So the argument, it, 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 it's a uh, it was biased. But um, uh, so that's sort of a non-trivial question on, on appeal, I would think, or even maybe now they had the best witness Trump had was a representative Ken Buck who is actually not a big, not a really a pro-Trump Republican. And he was complaining about the, uh, the that January 6th committee was a, uh, didn't represent the Republicans and was a political document. And um, at times I, I thought the judge thought he, he was, had some points. And how, if you just exclude the January 6th committee report, and you just uh, engage uncontested facts. Trump tweeted X. Trump said why, you know, so-and-so has been indicted for blank, right? Uh, Trump has been indicted for the following things. Could, do, do you need the January 6th report to get to insurrection within the meaning, assuming you adopt a capacious definition of of presumably you're you're not it's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt right so do you need a do, do you really need the january 6th committee report well 
It's a good question. They they called, you know, they called, you know, a five day trial. The January 6th report, you know, it, it involved millions of pages of documents. And and uh, I forget the number of witnesses, uh, you know, obviously over 100, maybe 300. There's just a depth there. Uh, I don't know if you would have enough without the January 6th report. They called two police officers, you know, one professor, one sociology professor. They showed some footage, you know, the ellipse speech uh, and, of course, uh, the, the, the violence um, and, and, and the lead up. It's a good question. I, I, I don't know if, if that's enough. And when are we expecting this ruling? 48 hours. So tomorrow, end of day tomorrow, I'm expecting a ruling. It should be remarkable. There, I should say there are also some lingering state law questions, sort of like, uh, you know, the Michigan case ruled on and, and Minnesota. Uh, but I, I think that the Colorado state officials uh, were pretty clear that they thought they had that this that the court did have jurisdiction to decide eligibility even for a primary they felt that was written into the Colorado law all right so we are going to go to audience questions now alice asks to the discussion you recently had of the odds of trump being imprisoned for defying a gag order i think there is zero chance Judge Chutkin would do this outside some extreme scenario in which someone is actually harmed because of something Trump says, or he explicitly and unmistakably calls for violence. But could she order some sort of house arrest with no internet access? And would this pass First Amendment muster? Um, So yeah, if you can order him, by the way, when I said he would be detained, I didn't mean he would necessarily be jailed. I think the likelihood is home, some sort of home confinement. Um, If you can order him locked up and you can, he is on pretrial release. You can offer order some lesser uh, form of detention as well. And it's quite uh, common to order a kind of home confinement situation. All that said, I do not think it is uh, uh, there's a zero chance of Judge Chutkin ordering, uh, you know, confinement. This is this is one of the tools that a court has to enforce its orders. And she is presiding over a case in which he is facing potentially many, many years in prison. She is contemplating his imprisonment. And uh, by the nature of sitting on this case and one thing, and, you know, I am fully unqualified to provide legal advice to anybody here, not being a member of the bar in any state. And unlike the fellow from uh, New Hampshire, uh, not having attended law school, but I can give you the following legal advice for free when you're on, uh, on trial in front of a judge using your own social media site to proclaim your prosecutor deranged in the face of a judicial order not to do that is going to antagonize the judge. And one of the one of the tools she has at her disposal is to point at you and say, lock him up. And when she says it, it's not like when Mike Flynn chants it at a at a rally. So I do want to contest the premise of the question, even as I say, look, the answer to the question is yes. 
uh, she can order some lesser form of confinement. Scott asks, how would a scenario where someone is excluded from the general election ballot but wins a a write-in campaign based on state election laws, is the winner simply the runner-up or does the Electoral College uh, exclude Colorado, Minnesota Electoral College votes? What about alternative slates of electors or the House not certifying the results of the election? Could Biden challenge the outcome if he loses? Uh, I don't think this is a non-zero probability. Uh, see Murkowski's successful write-in campaign in Arkansas, and Trump is much easier to spell than Murkowski. Uh, Roger, what do you think? On the election law issues, uh, I, I, I have no idea. But if he's struck, if, if, if somebody keeps him off the ballot, this goes higher. And uh, it, it goes to the Supreme Court. And if the Supreme Court says, yes, he was correctly kept off the ballot, he's an insurrectionist, ineligible uh, to uh, serve, um, then, uh, you know, these write-in votes become irrelevant. You know, if he if he wins the whole election by write-in, uh, he's still couldn't be seated. So I, 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 I think the vice presidential candidate would be the president. His. The key point here is that the question, the, con- the constitutional question is not whether he can appear in the, on the ballot. Uh, it's whether he's eligible to serve as president at all. And so that uh, at, it affects his ballot access as a, as a collateral matter but what it really prevents is is being sworn in. All right, uh, John Hawkinson, the floor is yours. Well, thank you. So since he's apparently such a focus, Harrison William Prescott Floyd the fourth, maybe not the fourth, uh, his counsel uses the email address kamikaze hitman at some domain, and that's Todd Harling. And I know the attorneys representing these guys are, are not the most polished, but I have to wonder what goes to the minds of the prosecutors and the other defense counsel every time they communicate with this guy via email. I'm curious what your take is. So wait, before we before we get into answering this question, John, how do you know uh, Harrison Floyd, who is not Harrison Ford, by the way, his lawyer's email address? I believe it showed up. It, uh, I noticed it because it showed up in uh, the documents filed by uh, the Fulton County DA's office earlier this week, uh, alleging that. So he you're did not, not doxing the guy on on trials not, and tribulations. And I'm not giving his full email address, but you can find it on the Internet, like many things. So your question is, what do we think of his lawyer having a email like this? Yeah, but I also want to note, you didn't mention it, but apparently there's this motion to revoke his bail. So that might be an important thing to talk about, too. Yeah. So we're going to get to that because there's a question specifically on that point down the road. But Anna, uh, you've dealt more with with the lawyers uh, for these guys than I have, although I've, I've done a bit. What do you say on the one to one, the zero to Sidney Powell cray cray scale of uh, Harrison Floyd's lawyers. What are we dealing with here? 
Well, it's definitely on the Sydney Powell side of things. Uh, so just I, I mean, I, I, I have not seen him uh, much in court, so I, I want to be careful and not assume. But I do know just a little bit about what he has worked on in the past. He's one of the people who has represented some of the folks who were, you know, trying to get access to a lot of like a lot of the ballot data and uh, voting system data in Fulton County in order to prove that the election was, quote, rigged, uh, is someone who is very, you know, involved in the election and, uh, quote, election integrity uh, kind of conspiracy like but not on the side of you know the people who have you know serious concerns about election security it's more on the uh sydney powell side of uh, uh the you know 2020 was stolen and the conspiracy theories and that kind of thing um so that's kind of what he's worked on in the past and it seems like you know here they are also pursuing a similar strategy uh, in terms of relitigating the 2020 election as a defense. Um, and I think someone has a specific question about that maybe later down the road. Um, uh, so maybe we'll talk about it then. But I, I don't really know what the story is uh, with the kamikaze hitman email. I will say that, you know, state court covering it and you kind of get used to pe- to lawyers having uh, some quirks because it's just a little bit more quirky and and a little bit more, you know, it's different. It's not cowboy like you said it's boots with cowboy with, boots from crocodiles. Yeah, you know, really I really cool old Mustangs. Yeah. Oh, it, well, it's actually an Impala. An Impala. An uh, Chevy so Impala. Scott yeah. Gr- which I should I should mention because uh, it, yes, we called Scott Grubman the Impala lawyer um, because he <laughs> he drove. <laughs> He drove uh, a like 1960s uh, uh, Chevy Impala. But um, so you get used to those quirks. But this seems a little bit I mean, to me, I just professionally would not do it. But I don't know what the story is or what the I I have. I just really can't. I have no insight into it. Um, But Ben, Roger, you guys have thoughts. Uh, This is the first I've heard of it, to be honest. And so I uh, I don't. I, I don't purport to have an opinion on the matter. I will say that uh, Kamikaze Hitman is a good name for a band. Uh, not sure it's a good email address for a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, I should actually, though, say, Ben, I think I I told you wrong and someone actually does not have a question about about the bail, bail revocation motion, uh, from what I can tell. So I think maybe we should talk about it now <laughs> that it's been brought up. All right, go ahead. Okay. Um, okay, right. So yes, uh, you are right. We do there is a uh, bill revocation motion. The uh, kind of grounds for it uh, is that the terms of Harrison Floyd's bond uh, say that he cannot communicate with co-defendants, uh, whether directly or indirectly, and he also cannot, you know, threaten or intimidate witnesses in the case. Uh, and Fonnie Willis's team uh, did this motion that has a very long list of examples in which Harrison Floyd was, um, you know, going on podcasts or mate- doing tweets or that. Uh, that kind of thing where, for example, he is, uh, you know, talking about he he says he called Jenna Ellis a whole mess when her when her proffer video um, 
came out uh, and he was, you know, kind of making comments about her. And then, you know, he had a lot that he's been tweeting about Ruby Freeman. Uh, he's been tweeting uh, clipped uh, portions of uh, audio from police body cam uh, that is out of context. And and I, I think, you know, quite deceptive and the way that it's being used. Um, and and he's so he's been tweeting a lot about that kind of stuff. And of course, Ruby Freeman is going to be a witness in the case, one of the main witnesses, especially in his case, uh, because his charges relate uh, beyond the RICO charge relate to uh, harassment campaign against her. Um, so, uh, you know, they have a, I've talked to some defense attorneys about it, not defense attorneys in the case, but uh, just, you know, Fulton County defense attorneys. It's, it seems to be that this is a really pretty strong uh, motion. Um, he has been ordered to appear personally at the hearing on Tuesday, but I still think that maybe we're not going to see his his bail revoked. It, we don't even have a trial date. It could be a very, very long time um, if he is, you know, put in jail. And I think that Judge McAfee is going to worry about what, you know, sending Harrison Floyd back to the Fulton County Jail for for tweeting these things, if that comes up in the future with Trump, you know, it it's it sets sets a precedent that I think that he is going to be maybe thinking about in terms of, you know, where he's going to draw the line because of what the issues will be later down the road if Trump is, you know, in the middle of a campaign and then he's making some rulings that Trump doesn't like and Trump starts coming after him and, you know, there's a a, a, a bond re- revocation uh, motion. But that is is what's going on with that. So, yeah. All right. Josh asks, if, as seems likely, the Chuck and gag order is upheld on appeal and, as promised, Trump appeals to the SCOTUS, one, how long might that take? Two, how will it affect the progress of the trial and the March trial date? So this is an easy one. Uh, it will take exactly as long as the Supreme Court wants it to take, uh, is the answer. And uh, the answer to part two is it will not affect the progress of the trial and the March trial date unless the Supreme Court were to decide it wanted it to and were to slap a stay on the whole proceedings. There'd be no reason to do that, I don't think, because the issue before them would be limited to the question of what can Trump say. It doesn't, it's not a question that raises a question of whether the trial itself is defective or not. Is that a fair summary, Roger? Yeah, that's that's what I think, yeah. I do think it's possible they might, uh, the panel uh, might tweak the order in some way. Or that the Supreme Court might. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, there's a, yeah. Mm-hmm. Anonymous attendee asks, are any of Judge Cannon's orders appealable at this point? So we sort of discussed this, um, but I think the answer is no. And she's been careful not to write anything that would be appealable. But when she rules on the SEPA matters, those uh, will presumably be appealable when she finally uh, rules on them. Clarissa, you have a SEPA-related question. Uh, The floor is yours. 
Yes. So I, I read something about a SEPA 5, uh, our, our Part 5 order that Canon um, neglected to schedule. Can you expand on what SEPA Article 5 is? This one has your name on it, Roger. Uh, yeah, that's where it's a notice that the defendant gives of what he wants, the classified information he wants to use. So that can be partly from information he's learned already from the government. It might be stuff that he has access to separately. So what happens is um, that was supposed, uh, the original schedule called for the uh, defendant Trump to, to give that notice tomorrow. And then, you know, one of the things that uh, the judge postponed indefinitely was the Section 5 notice. So what yesterday the special counsel said, well, look, he has all of the 5,500 pages of classified material now. He's had it since October 17th. He had most of it since uh, you entered uh, the order, protective order, uh, September 13th. He would have had some of that earlier if you had em uh, entered the protective order earlier. Why don't we go forward with the notice from him, uh, say, on December 18th? Because as it is right now, you have nothing scheduled all the way till March 1st. And, you know, if we don't get the Section 5 notice until after March 1st, there's no way we can do all the other SEPA procedures in time before the trial starts. And she said, no. The myth, the mystery, Judge yeah. Cannon. Richard. The floor is yours. It seems like it might be obvious, but I'm unclear about what sort of classified um, content is actually going to be relevant in the documents trial. And I realize that the level of classification of particular documents is relevant, but but why is the specific content at issue? And of course, why would the defense need to have that available? I mean, I, I can imagine cases like, oh, is this the document you saw? Yeah, I, that's the document. But um, but beyond that, I'm I'm uh, what I'm kind of thinking of. And so, can the can the defense raise the question, for example, of whether the documents are misclassified? And um, do these kind of questions about the specific content does that actually lie within the court's jurisdiction? It is a super important question. I have thoughts on it, but I'm sure Roger does uh, too. So Roger, why don't you go first? So yeah, no, uh, the crime uh, that uh, Trump allegedly committed is withholding, unlawfully withholding national defense information. And so, yes, uh, one of the things that he can do is say that this wasn't proper, this isn't national defense information, that it, it, it's not the same definite, it's the fact that it's classified, if it's classified, I mean, Trump can also say it wasn't classified, but he, he can argue that it wasn't national defense information. And, and he can do that in a lot of different ways. He can say, look, uh, here's an article from the New York Times that discusses the same thing. Um, so this should know, you know, it, maybe it was once, 
but it should no longer be classified. So, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, the content does matter. So I agree with that. Let's discuss it from the point of view of both the prosecution and the defense, because then I'll, I think you'll see why, why you have to you have to get into the documents. So from the prosecution's point of view, it is not an element of the defense, an element of the offense that the document be about X rather than Y. And from the point of view of proving the case, the contents of the documents really don't matter. The only thing that matters is, is it national defense information of which classification is a highly presumptive indicator? That said, so from the prosecution's point, you you have just, uh, Richard, amply stated the reasonable incredulity with which the prosecution approaches a question like this, which is we don't have to prove what's in the documents. We just have to prove that they're classified, that he that they were responsive to the subpoenas, that he hid them rather than turn them over. That said, if you're a defense lawyer, first of all, you're going to want to argue, as Roger pointed out, that they're not properly classified. They're not national defense information. They're something else, that the information is widely available elsewhere, right? To do that, you need a certain amount of content analysis of the thing. You are also going to want to cast doubt on uh, prosecution witnesses that do exactly the thing, Richard, which you just mentioned in passing, which is, hey, was this the document that you see? You're going to want to be able to ask questions like, how do you know, General Milley, that this was the document you see? And in order to ask a question like that, you have to have some familiarity with the document because you're going to want to trip General Milley up and say, but wasn't your document written? The document that you presented and talked to, you know, wasn't that from October 23rd and this one? Look here, what date is this from, right? And so there's a certain amount of that stuff that is really important to impeaching witness testimony. And then uh, there's uh, another category, which is just to the extent that you can throw smoke in the air about the contents of documents, um, you can raise a uh, legitimate question in the minds of jurors. And so from the defense lawyer's point of view, it is super important to have as much access as you can and to be able to talk about as much as you can, because that is how you poke holes. And sometimes the holes you poke are very small ones, but they add up over time. All right. Joyce asks, and she stresses only a little bit facetiously, is there any chance that when Judge Cannon actually sees the documents at issue and the national security content contained therein, that she will have a come to Jesus moment? So without knowing anything about Judge Cannon's religiosity, I will just say that seems unlikely-ish to me, but I would defer to both Roger and Anna, both of whom have been in the courtroom and watching Judge Cannon. I mean, I would just say, I think that if by now she's not had a come to Jesus moment with the, you know, supersede at least the superseding indictment (laughs) then i feel like a come to jesus moment will will not happen uh so that's all i'll say about that yeah i'm dubious as well 
All right. We're going to go to Chris, who asks, now that we know that the Fulton County case won't be tried before the election, is there any chance that OLC will revisit its position on prosecuting a sitting president? Answer, no. Uh, OLC revisits positions uh, extremely sparingly. This is, an ex- this is a very old one. It's 50 years old. Uh, it has been renewed across administration of diverse parties. And it has, uh, uh, at this point, all of the features, and it is protective of uh, legitimate executive uh, uh, authorities and prerogatives. It's possible, I suppose, that eventually the, the courts will uh, overturn that position, but I don't think the federal justice department unbidden ever will. So Tony asks, I saw Mr. Floyd's counsel is asking for discovery of all ballot images and metadata, curiously highlighting the need for SHA hashes. State agencies, apparently too involved, said it would take many months to collect them. Can they really recount and relitigate the election, apparently starting from state archives? Anna, are we going to have a recount in the form of discovery in this case? No, I I don't think that the idea is that they're going to recount. I I think what they're trying to do is like, I mean, they have a lot of theories, I'm sure, but it's the kind of thing where they're wanting to show like there's enough duplicate ballots or or that kind of thing. Like they, they have like all these different kind of theories about it that they're trying to prove. So I, I don't think it's a recount situation, but, you know, they have said that they plan to relitigate the 2020 election. So, you know, and I know that they've said as well that if they can't prove that, you know, the RICO charge is basically defeated by the idea that there was no you know, rightful election to overturn because it had been stolen or but if they can't do that, their argument is that they still need those ballots, because even if the election wasn't uh, stolen, then it uh, is the case that he's going to argue a mistake of fact because he's going to say, but I I genuinely thought it was. So that's kind of the argument that they've made. McAfee seemed to be inclined to say, like, I can I guess I can see that it is relevant. Um, I will say that in terms of that discovery dispute, I know that one of the state agencies, uh, the secretary of state's office, they they kind of resolved their discovery dispute. I I'm a little bit doubtful that they're actually going to pay to get all of the things that they wanted, because one of the things that McAfee had uh, you know, said is that you're, you'd have to pay for the redaction costs, for the retrieval costs, for all of this stuff. Um, and it would cost, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. Um, so I, I don't know how they resolved it, um, but I do know that at least with the Secretary of State's office, it's been resolved. Um, so we'll see. I, I don't know. I, I You can decide for yourself whether it's uh, is um, a, a good defense strategy to try to relitigate the 2020 election, because in my view, it's not. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I think that's going to play well to a jury. Uh, and I'm a little skeptical that they will actually do that in front of a jury. Although some of Roger's favorite defendants have have employed very eccentric defenses in front of DC jurors. So who knows? And, and they're actually... 
pledging to do that in the federal, in the D.C. case as well, Trump. And and in fact, they're going to try to do it there through classified documents. There's a little gray mail going on there as well. But I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. Last question is from Ian, who asks, Section 3, when it was ratified, was very much about denying many Americans the right to vote for candidates of their choice. Why do we worry about democratic rights of Americans who want to vote for people who tried to overthrow the government this century? Denying those rights seems entirely consistent with history and tradition. So I will say this is a very provocative formulation of this question, but I think the question is a serious one. And um, and that is exactly, in fact, what Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says. I don't think there's a all that serious a question about what Section 3 means. There's a series of technical questions. That is, if you engaged in insurrection, having been an office holder, you are barred from further office. There is a series of technical questions as to whether that applies to this circumstance, that one relates to the definition of an insurrection, one, as uh, Roger uh, was discussing before, uh, is uh, relates to um, you know, whether uh, this can be litigated at this stage or whether it has to wait till the general election. One relates to whether this is a political question. One relates, which we haven't discussed in a while, to the question of whether the president is an officer of the United States or not, which is a super wonky technical question that absorbs a lot of people. But none of that is in the name of the democratic rights of the public. It's basically a a set of technical questions about whether the statute, whether the provision does or does not apply to this situation. I think everybody conceptually agrees, actually, that if it was an insurrection, and if Donald Trump was an officer of it, and if the thing is self-executing, then he's barred. Um, And so I don't think anybody has a conceptual problem with the idea of depriving people of their democratic rights. Rogers looks like he disagrees with me. I think the way the questioner, I'm sorry, I didn't get your name. uh, I think the way you put it is is uh, sort of is right. And uh, and I think maybe the I mean, I the way I understand a lot of the Trump arguments, uh, including a trial, is, you know, yes, you're trying to deprive uh, voters uh, of their choice. And I think maybe the response is, and I I probably have the philosopher wrong, but I I remember John Locke saying that you, you don't have the liberty to sell yourself into slavery. Is that possibly John Locke? But I think that our constitution might have the equivalent thing. You don't have the right to vote yourself into an authoritarian regime. And, uh, you know, if if this person, uh, the president, took an oath to uphold the constitution and uh, then uh, committed, engaged in insurrection against the constitution, 
no, he, he's ineligible and you may want to vote for him, but forget about it. He's had his shot. It's over. Yeah, I will just say uh, that um, that's right. And I think I think nobody's at least among the scholars who are who are talking about this. Nobody is disagreeing with that basic premise. Trump is obviously using a lot of rhetoric, um, but the the basics of his litigating position is actually a little bit different from that. The basics of his litigating position are it's not self-executing. It's a political question, right? It's a, you know, X, Y, and Z. And so there is a, a, a common understanding of the framework here. It's, there's just no common understanding of how the framework applies. On that cheerful note, folks, you are all forbidden from selling yourselves into slavery in the next week uh, and actually over the next two weeks because uh, we are going to take the week off next week for Thanksgiving at four o'clock next Thursday. We will all be stuffing ourselves silly as you should be. We will not be thinking about the Trump trials. We will be back the following week for Trump trials and tribulations as per usual. Have a great week and a great Thanksgiving. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, where I'm sitting right now. Folks, you need to do your part to support the Lawfare Podcast. I am currently sitting here with 14 material supporters of Lawfare who are oddly listening to me record this introduction. You can be one of them if what floats your boat is watching me uh, record outros to the Lawfare podcast. But you can also join the conversation that precedes the outro. And that is what the material supporters get to do. So go to lawfaremedia.org support and become one of the elect, the people who get to attend these sessions. Hey, the Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our audio engineer is the long-suffering Anna Hickey, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.